Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. And today I'm talking to the novelist Lionel Shriver in the offices of The Spectator, where she's been a columnist for three and a half years. Shriver's novel, We Need to Talk About Kevin, won the Orange Prize in 2005, has sold over two million copies and was made into a film in 2011 starring Tilda Swinton. Uh, and she is no stranger to controversy and has been a lockdown sceptic since the beginning of the pandemic. I think that the main thing I want to talk to you about is lockdown scepticism, but we might venture a little further afield. Have you been surprised by how few lockdown sceptics there have been amongst the literary class, intellectuals? I think you know the answer. I've been astonished. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't be because this same conformism seems to apply to everything else. So why should lockdowns be any different? The entire intellectual so-called community seems to speak with one voice on race, on Brexit, and this is just one more source of perfect conformity. Why do you think, though, it went in that direction rather than the other? You would have thought that given the progressive tenor of the intellectual class, that they would have been opposed to imprisoning entire populations, the healthy as well as the sick, particularly given that the disadvantaged seem to suffer much more than people like us from being imprisoned in their homes, and given the impact it's likely to have on the developing world, why didn't they, but in an equally conformist way, oppose lockdowns. This is one more illustration of the fact that uh, our conventional conceptions of left and right no longer apply. The left is absolutely as inclined or more so to be authoritarian than the right. These directional terms don't really function anymore. I think that in terms of getting around the inconvenient fact that lockdowns hugely punished people who have few resources... The left tends to talk about the fact that these people are victims of the virus, right? So that the virus is cruelly punishing these people unduly. But that's not what is punishing them. It's not really a matter of disease, is it? It's because of having the economy squelched. The punishment is coming from the cure, not from a disease. I have to start from a position of total incomprehension, though. I mean, why society after society in the West has simply capitulated to unprecedented measures to contain what turns out to be a relatively mild disease in the big pandemic picture. I think it rates about number 15. And why has everyone rolled over? My husband has a knee-jerk habit. It's not a bad one. Always asking who benefits. Mm -hmm. I don't find that question especially enlightening at this point. There has been 
a certain amount of opportunism on behalf of you know companies that make masks. You know, clearly, certain pharmaceutical companies are likely to clean up. But for the most part, this is not good for pretty much everybody. There are outliers. But even if you are a part of a business which happens to be doing okay out of this freakishly, you are also a part of a larger economy in which for you to thrive, you need for it to thrive. And we have effectively put chloroform over the entire Western world. So why is this good for anybody? It's mystifying on every level. Do you think that at some collective unconscious level, there is a kind of willed self-destruction animating this reaction on the part of the authorities? I think there may be an element of that. It certainly hit some resonance with the will to self-destruction in academia and the tearing down of Western icons, sometimes literally, the demonization of the West on the left and the cultivation of self-hatred. So it makes a certain sense that that could be in tandem with a will to self-destruction in other areas, including the economy. But the irony is that I, I think maybe a larger element is complacency, in some ways the opposite of a will to self-destruction, a sense of imperviousness that the West has been relatively okay for about 75 years, you know, ever since the last World War. We've been pretty prosperous, and we haven't had military altercations on that scale ever again. Also in Europe, you've got what I believe to be a bizarre faith in government. That's one respect in which I'm more American than the British. I don't place inordinate faith in government, and I am all too keenly aware that government doesn't make anything, does not create wealth, it takes wealth. So I, I, I find it a little mystifying that since we all technically know that, that the British are not alarmed that they are being paid right now with their own money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's as if it's manna from heaven, all this furlough stuff but it's their money, and they're going to have to pay it back. Mm-hmm. I think there is this sense that we'll be okay, that we are not playing with very dangerous forces. I mean, I've been vocal about my fear about what kind of international economic instability that we are potentially inviting, because one of the things that we've never done before is not just lock up whole societies for months on end, but we have never had countries all over the world in concert, suddenly borrowing vast amounts of money and essentially conjuring it from thin air. And what does that introduce into a system that is already fragile, as we saw in 2008? And it's worse now, and we're further in debt now. 2008 was, for me anyway, a a real wake-up call. And uh, I feel that too many people have hit the snooze and gone back to sleep. Do you hold out any hope that following the astonishing incompetence of the British and American governments in their response to this pandemic, but also other governments around the world, France, Italy, that it'll be a sort of wake-up call for 
the citizens in those countries and they'll realise that they've placed far too much faith, that they've had far too much confidence in the ability of the ruling class to manage events like this. I mean, it's almost exposed them as just staggeringly, shockingly incompetent, even to cynics like you and I. And is that going to have a kind of galvanising effect on the citizens of those countries? Are they going to think from now on, we have to take more responsibility for our own lives. We can't depend upon our masters to look after us properly because they've just proved to be utterly useless. I would love for that to be true. I suspect that's not what's going to happen. I mean, we can't just blame governments at this point. We have to blame the larger populations who not only elected them, but supported them and did not speak out and say, you know, I've been doing my own homework. I've been reading Lockdown Skeptics newsletter. I've been listening to epidemiologists who are not on the government's SAGE Mm -hmm. committee, and there's a great deal of scientific disagreement about this method of trying to combat a disease. And I'm sorry, but I don't think the strategy is working. In fact, if you look at the government's own statistics, the strategy is conspicuously not working. So what is wrong with the populace that they accept the government line, and I'm afraid, especially in the U.S. and the U.K., the media line. So there's a kind of laziness there, a willingness to be manipulated. As far as I can tell from the polls, the majority of the British population believes that the big mistake that the British government made was not locking down early enough or hard enough or long enough, that we should have been disallowed from doing anything since the beginning of March, if not earlier, which is shocking. And of course, that's the line that the BBC and Channel 4 promote. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, You'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to BetterHelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. It is a little shocking. I mean, it's one thing not expecting governments to put up more resistance when faced with a kind of consensus amongst one particular group of progressive activist scientists. And you wouldn't expect, perhaps, the courts to 
mount a challenge to the kind of power grab by executives across the world. But journalists, you would expect to behave more like, you know, a fourth estate and to provide some sort of check and balance. But they've been astonishingly craven and supine in going along with what governments and public authorities of various kinds, particularly public health authorities, have been telling them. No willingness to kind of engage with the data or to critically evaluate what they're being told. They've just, for the most part, with some exceptions, they've just sucked it up and regurgitated it. Something's gone wrong culturally in the media. The kind of person now attracted to journalism is a different kind of person than the kind who used to pursue this profession. It attracts activists, and you know we don't even have the same kind of activists we used to. I mean, activists you used to think often counter to the mainstream, but these are people who have been inculcated into university mainstream thought. The media as a whole, insofar as you can talk about them as as a coherent group, has been displaying this herd mentality for quite some time now. I mean, look at the way Black Lives Matter was covered, and still is. You know, I don't mean just the the original natural revulsion to the George Floyd thing, but when the movement morphed and became much more violent, there was very little questioning There was very little digging into what the difference between Black Lives Matter, the slogan, and Black Lives Matter, the organization, was and what the organization wanted. And certainly in the UK, the media has spoken uh, as a single voice in relation to Brexit. There is a pattern here. These are the big issues of our time, and yet journalists are only expressing one side. There's something profoundly wrong in journalism itself in also at particular institutions, the BBC in the UK, the New York Times in the US, which is a shadow of its former self. It's a tragedy. And generally, the more prestigious the institution, the more of a cathedral of journalistic values, the more conformist, the more establishment-orientated, the less critical, the less dissident it is, which is sort of shocking, isn't it? You'd expect there to be some room within those institutions for some dissenting voices who would be tolerated and not simply expelled. I think part of it has to do with ambition. You know, individual people who want to be successful and get the impression that you have to take this particular line in order to promote your interests within the organization. And taking ideological risks is not rewarded. It's always hard to quite fathom what an institution is. I mean, ultimately, it's a group of people, but it also functions as a single entity. Um, and, and institutions can become wayward and corrupt. And I think that we're seeing this all over the place. And the reasons for this, I don't know. I'm, I'm really tired of blaming social media for everything. So I just won't. Do you sometimes think that even though you would want there to be much more pluralism, uh, much more space for dissident voices, and for there not to be a kind of monolithic establishment view. The fact that there is creates space and opportunity 
for people like us. And if it was the way we wanted it to be, we wouldn't really matter. I agree. You and I are much more prominent because so few other people are standing up. Although there are any number of people who have stood up, a large proportion of them are scientists mm-hmm. for whom I am also very grateful. Mm-hmm. People who know what they're talking about and who have helped me to, however modestly, also know what I'm talking about. I'm dependent. I have found this experience even more so than Brexit and Black Lives Matter or the Trump election or anything. I find it's been a real test of character. And any number of people for whom I have great regard, and I'm not going to name any names, have really let me down. And at the same time, other people, other figures, some of them public, who have not necessarily been previously very prominent, have really impressed me. It's been a man from the boys, if I may use a (laughs) sexist term, experience, wheat from chaff, if you will, Mm -hmm. and I try to focus on the positive. At least I have been delighted to find, you know, someone like Alison Pearson at the Telegraph, Mm -hmm. who's a lovely person, but you wouldn't necessarily have thought on meeting her that she was that courageous, which is Mm -hmm. a different quality. Mm -hmm. And she has been fantastic. Have you found yourself increasingly estranged from your tribe over the last 10 to 15 years? Or were you always an outsider who never felt particularly at home on the kind of liberal left, Democrat supporting, educated class? Not to get into a subject that would divert this interview into a whole, I probably broke with the conventional liberal left when I was living in Belfast. Right. Especially in the United States. And, oh, oh, of course, you know, among the Guardianistas over here. Uh, there was a great deal of support for the IRA, and um, that didn't make any sense to me. It was completely illogical. They were thugs, they were completely illiberal, and they were murderers. Why are you supporting that? So it was a matter of some intellectual profundity for me, and it was emotional, because living there, it wasn't abstract. People were being killed pointlessly, and... And then there were all these would-be virtuous people who were supporting them. It didn't make sense, and I was uh, I was alienated. So I never felt the same about the left since, and I've always been suspicious ever since of these directional terms because they're not lining up with the values that they're supposed to be associated with. Do you think that the libertarian, authoritarian access more accurately captures differences between people and their attitudes to things like Brexit and the pandemic than the left-right access. Yeah, I think that's definitely more meaningful. Although the exasperating thing about accepting the libertarian label, which I have done on occasion, is that it comes with a lot of baggage. There's a whole bunch of people who don't even know what it means, so that's part of the package. (laughs) But inconveniently for this particular issue of the coronavirus, it's also associated with callous individualism. 
which, you know, it's all beggar thy neighbor and you don't care about other people. You just want to do whatever you want. And in fact, as an ethic, that's not the case at all. You, you can't claim that a way of looking at the world that you should be allowed to do whatever you like, yes, as long as you don't hurt somebody else. That's not callous. And in fact, the measures to control the coronavirus are doing untold damage to other people. And I think you and I both are primarily motivated in this debate, insofar as there is one, out of some degree of altruism. And I say that with a sense of embarrassment because I don't actually think of myself as an altruist. But I am horrified by what is being done to our societies. And I'm much more horrified by what's being done to other people than by what is being done particularly to me. I'm a writer. I can write at home. I've been allowed to go to the supermarket. So that's all I really need to do all day. Mm-hmm. I can keep in communication with other people by other means, by then, then necessarily meeting in public. I have a, an antisocial streak a mile wide, so something in me is sometimes feels a little fortunate to get out of having to go to all these social occasions. I have not been especially inconvenienced, and my income has not been particularly damaged. So what I'm upset about is this larger horror which is being inflicted on places and people that I care about. I think one of the reasons our government reacted as it did, one of the reasons it initially pursued what looked like a policy of herd immunity, then panicked, U-turned and locked down, is because at the beginning the choice was framed as a choice between protecting people or protecting the economy. And if you didn't lock down, that meant you were callous and you were valuing profits before people. And I think for a a social democrat government, that would have been a less toxic criticism, something they would be less wary of. But for a conservative government, they were terrified that all the deaths that they failed to prevent would be hung around their neck Mm -hmm. and would be a constant reminder to everyone just how callous they were, particularly if the NHS was overwhelmed. That's the kind of conservative party's Achilles heel, doesn't care enough about the NHS. So it was an absolute priority for a conservative government to do whatever it could to protect the NHS and to prevent unnecessary deaths. Had it been a Labour government, perhaps it might have been a different story. Maybe they could have more comfortably pursued that herd immunity strategy as the Swedish government did. I'm afraid both parties would have done the same thing. They probably would have done, yeah. 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 Because we're not dealing with people who are original thinkers. And this whole phenomenon has been a great big domino effect, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's copying everyone else. Yeah. And it takes some nerve to stand out and say, and this is the same on an individual level as it is on a governmental level. It's hard to be the one to say, hold on here. This doesn't seem necessary In fact, it seems destructive and counterproductive and is not going to do anything but delay infections either. In fact, I I noticed in one of your recent newsletters, it Mm -hmm. really stood out, someone actually read Neil Ferguson's infamous paper Mm -hmm. uh, predicting originally 510,000 deaths in the UK if nothing Mm -hmm. was done. He himself observed 
that locking down wouldn't work and would do nothing but delay inevitable infections and drag out the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That was in that original paper. Mm -hmm. And it was just screened out. Yeah. I think it was in Stacey Rudin's piece in the American Institute for Economic Affairs blog. I remember it. Very good piece. I suppose we should take into account that many of the people listening to this won't share our perspective and will think that actually locking down to various degrees was was the right response. I'm sure of that. It's very time-consuming to keep up with the information out there that runs contrary to this meta-narrative. And so everyone doesn't have all that time. They have other things to do. I understand that. I hope I don't sound superior and smug. I probably do. That's not my intention. But I do spend a lot of time on this. And for people who have better things to do, we've probably all seen the classic graph of deaths going way up in March and April and and then sliding down the ski slope. Well, sometimes people point out, yes, that those deaths started descending earlier than they would have if they had been caused by lockdowns. That usually gets lost. I think that most normal people look at that and think, oh, well, that curve came down because of the lockdowns, Mm -hmm. right? The government did something. We stayed home and the virus subsided. And then we unlocked and started actually having a life a little bit over the summer. And then Naturally, it's going up again. We're being punished. We should never have come out of lockdown. And if we just go into lockdown again, we can bring that curve right back down. But that curve didn't go down because of lockdown. If you look at every single country, or sometimes you have to look at regions. In the United States, you have to look at... The United States is so enormous Mm -hmm. that we're actually dealing with effectively many different countries, Mm -hmm. and uh, which are experiencing this same curve... Mm -hmm at different times. Mm -hmm. That curve has been traced everywhere. Mm -hmm. That is the curve the virus takes. That Mm -hmm. is a biological curve. It is not a political curve. Mm -hmm. And because the virus traces that same high, sudden, escalating surge of deaths, falling back down, absolutely everywhere, regardless of policy, Mm -hmm. regardless whether there was any lockdown, what restrictions there are, the government is kind of cleaning up on biology in this because it's like, look, see, we we brought the deaths down. They're taking credit. It's all, you know, nicely set up so that when the infections go up, we've been bad. We've been bad. We've been going to bars. You know, we've been snogging or we've been not obeying what restrictions that are out. We've had seven people in our group and we violated the rule of six. And, of course, there's no evidence for this. Mm-hmm. So it's our fault if it goes up. It's the government's brilliant policy if it goes down. And the truth is that in neither case is it anyone's fault or credit. Mm-hmm. There's, it's just doing what it does. I hate this language that uh, politicians are constantly using about how, you know, we have to get the virus under control. Mm-hmm. Or it's getting out of control. It's never been in control. It cannot be in control. We can take measures on our own account to reduce the likelihood of being infected, but 
there really is no protection. It's already endemic. It feels like a sort of archetypal myth about the folly of mankind mm-hmm. being played out. And it's a natural disaster, which we can do very little about. But because we are vainglorious mm-hmm. and egocentric, we imagine that if we intervene in various ways, we can control something which is beyond our control. And so we intervene and cause such damage, we end up not merely not protecting or not mitigating the damage being caused by the natural disaster, we end up burning down the whole house in order to protect ourselves from the incoming flood. It's extraordinarily hubristic, particularly when you, you look at the response to previous pandemics, even as recently as 68, 69, where I think it was the Asian flu proportionally killed more people than COVID's likely to kill. There wasn't this hubristic belief that governments around the world could collectively do something to prevent the death caused by that pandemic. And if you look at the recommendations, even as recently as 2019 from the WHO, Britain's influenza, what was it, pandemic preparedness strategy, most recently revised in 2011, the advice in those documents is clear, quarantining the healthy as well as the sick will cause far more damage than harm it's likely to prevent. That's not the way to go. This was the kind of collective wisdom of the human race, yes. of, of generations of scientists who had studied pandemics and studied ways of managing them. Don't quarantine the healthy as well as the sick because the economic and social and ultimately the public health costs will be far greater than any benefit that's likely to arise. Uh, and yet that was just discarded. Well, one of the reasons that it's important to set the record straight and to try to combat this mythology that the only thing that governments have done wrong is not locked down soon enough, long enough, and hard enough, is that we cannot do this again. We cannot. And in fact, Boris Johnson moving steadily toward what is a de facto national lockdown, whatever he calls it, is a tragic error of repeating a mistake instead of correcting it and admitting it. But this cannot be allowed to be installed as what we do when we have a contagion, Mm -hmm. that this is the new protocol. Mm -hmm. That way lies total Mm self-destruction. And somehow we have to change the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried that we're not going to get a sense of perspective on this for many years. We can't take that long. You know, we can't just wait for the judgment of history 20 years from now to look back on this and say, what on earth were they thinking? And now, a brief shout out for another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You've heard me talk about Jordan's podcast before, and you know that Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. But if you haven't given it a listen, let me just tick off some of the guests this guy has managed to get. Bob Saget, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, Mark Cuban, and the late Kobe Bryant. And if you tune in regularly, you'll know that this isn't just a parade of famous people. Jordan also finds folks you've never heard of, 
who just happen to have fascinating stories. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. If we weren't able to learn the lessons of previous pandemics, if we ignored the advice of the WHO, of Britain's public health authorities until this year, what hope is there that even with a public inquiry chaired by Lord Sumption, in which you and I are employed to write the report, what reason is there to think it won't be completely ignored when the next pandemic comes along? I mean, I think one of the reasons governments across the world, particularly our government, have mishandled this is partly because the electorate, the general public, places so much confidence in the ability of government to kind of address these problems. They think the government is ultimately responsible for all of these things. And so the government thinks that, well, if it doesn't do something to try and prevent deaths, Mm -hmm. it'll be blamed for them. People won't just accept that this is biological. But they've created a monster and they can't uncreate it. I'm sure we've all seen that big, spiky, round thing behind news presenters. It looks like bad CGI. So it looks literally like a monster of the clumsy sort that we create in bad movies. This virus is not that dangerous. And it would have been possible in a different reality, effectively a parallel universe, for government instead to be comforting, to expose us increasingly to consoling information about how many people are surviving, to encourage the media to calm people down, and to encourage them to go about their business and to explain very clearly who is most at risk because this is a disease that kills people at the average age, not the top age, the average age of 82.4 years. Mm -hmm. Because so many people have been very elderly, the chances are that a lot of them would have died soon anyway because this is operating as an opportunistic Mm -hmm. Infection, And, you know, Neil Ferguson himself acknowledged that probably two-thirds of the people who are dying would have died within the year. That's hard to know, but it's likely, and it could be reflected in the statistics once this is over, that you're going to have a lower death rate, especially among the elderly, because they died a little sooner than they would have otherwise. In your new novel, The Motion of the Body Through Space, one of the themes you explore is mortality and coming to terms with your own mortality and your own looming death. Is there anything you anticipated, do you think, about the moment we're in when you wrote that? Are your characters unable to properly grapple with the reality of death? And has that been something that has animated our inability to properly assess risk and deal with this virus? My most recent novel is centered mostly on the issue of exercise, of all (laughs) things. And, you know, there are two main reasons that people become obsessed with exercise. And one of them is competitive. It's about the achievement of status, right? Because now it's not good enough just to be thin and alluring. You you also have to have a six-pack. Uh, But the other reason is ultimately all about avoidance of mortality. We are told over and over again that that if we want to be healthy and live for a long time, i.e. forever, 
then we have to run 10 miles every other day. The novel casts doubt on this. It casts doubt on whether or not running and doing your press-ups is really going to give you eternal life. And I hope it does it with a certain lightness and sense of humor. Interesting. One of the ways in which the virus has been exploited by advocates of public health is to say, look, hate to say it, but people who are overweight are much more vulnerable to this disease. Yes. This is a, a timely reminder that you need to stay fit and healthy and exercise regularly, don't smoke, don't drink. It's been sort of manna from heaven for the kind of public health fascists. Do you think that it won't cure us of our obsession with living forever and our fear of death? It'll just make it kind of even more acute. Oh, it's definitely making it more acute. I mean, there seems to be a medicalizing of the entire public consciousness, Mm. you know? We are being trained to avoid each other, to regard each other as little mobile germ factories rather than as people. This mask thing is a social catastrophe. In terms of what it does to the social atmosphere, it's just grotesque. They just like being trapped on the wrong side of the screen in a feature film that doesn't end well. I think we used to be accustomed to the fact that we gave each other diseases, and now we are so hyper-aware that I'm worried this could be, I hesitate to say, permanent transformation, but perhaps a very long-lasting one. My husband came back from Manhattan recently, and he said, you know, I had the revelation today that I'm going to be wearing a mask for the rest of my life. I hope he's wrong. But I know the feeling that something seems to have changed in a profound way. There's a way in which people wear masks, especially in New York, frankly. It's so proud. There's a sense of attachment to it because it's associated with virtue. And they don't seem to want to take them off. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that even once any danger is passed, There will always be more danger. We will always be contagious to each other with something. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep trading other coronaviruses that give us colds. There's always going to be flu. There's all kinds of viral whatnot that we can continue to protect ourselves against forever. Right? Mm -hmm. How long is this going to last? How long do we become basically neurotic germaphobes? That's being encouraged. And I don't mind washing my hands. It's a good habit. But I'm willing to draw the line at that. Well, Lionel Schreiber, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. It's been my pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.